needless to say, good to see everybody. Thankful y'all are here and uh, excited to be back with you in Leviticus. Uh, thankful for Pastor Stephen taking last week and now we're going to uh, continue here picking up where we left off. We really don't have that much left in Leviticus. You know, uh, what chapter is it in with? 27? 27. So we're in 24. So I know y'all going to be sad. So we're just going to do the first uh, four verses tonight. Stretch it out. Stretch it out. Really, no, I'm glad uh, to be here. This has been good, and we're going to continue looking together. I don't know what else to say other than let's get to this in case something else happens, um, and we will, we'll, we'll, we'll get through it. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity again to be together tonight, and uh, God, what a blessing it is to, to uh, have this group in this room at this time, and even to have joy and laughter, Father. We thank you for that. There's a reason why we gather, God, and uh, we gather because, first and foremost, you are Lord, and you are King of this universe, and that you have provided your Son for us to redeem us and save us from our sins. And you have provided your word for us so that we know how we are to live in light of all that you have done. So God, we give you praise for all of these things. And it's just a part of the joy overflowing from your redemption and your provision of your word that allows us also to have the fellowship with one another. So God, um, Grant us this time to grow in your grace, all for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Does anybody know the name uh, Chuck Colson? Does anybody know Chuck Colson? Chuck Colson passed away a good uh, couple years back. Chuck Colson was in Nixon's White House. He was uh, his number two, really. Uh, God, did you get that thing off? It'll never work again, will it? Amen. Good. All right. Just making sure it's not going to go off again. <laughs> uh, Chuck Colson worked in Nixon's White House. Of course, he was one of the fall guys. He was in jail. And in prison, Chuck Colson came to know the Lord. So he wrote his biography called Born Again and uh, about that story of going through Nixon, going through Watergate, being arrested, and then coming to faith in prison. He started prison fellowship and a ministry to prisons because of where he uh, became uh, saved and, and following the Lord. He wanted to give back to that, so through prison fellowship and other things. He also became a writer, and he wrote a book. He wrote a book. Uh, there, was another, there was another Christian author in the 1970s uh, named Francis Schaeffer who, who wrote a book on worldviews. And so worldview idea is something that has, is fairly recent in history. We know about philosophy. It deals with philosophy. So traditional philosophy and, and enlightenment and all of these ages, age of reason, those kind of things happen, right? So, you know, oftentimes that stuff seems so kind of distant and, and just idealistic for us and not in reality. But worldviews, worldviews is kind of meeting us where we're at. How do we understand the world, right? How do we understand how these things work? How do we understand? Let's see what I'm talking about. We're going to 9:30 tonight. How do we understand the world and, and, and all of these things together? And so, if 
certain things are true, then it matters how you live. And so Colson wrote a book that was very helpful, How Now Shall We Live is the title. And it's, it's, it's an idea of if there's certain things we believe, then those beliefs, and we've talked about this before, are going to be evidenced in how we live our life. And so our worldview, and so your belief system should be able to answer all of life's big questions, right? So, so all of the questions everybody really wants to know, like uh, where did we come from, and, and how do we know the difference between right and wrong, and where did we get that sense, right? And, 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 and how do we understand life? I mean, these are all philosophical questions for people. Y'all ever heard the name John Locke? Y'all ever heard this name? So John Locke is in what's called an empiricist, or had a vision of it called the tabula rasa. We were a blank slate, is what he said. And so everything we learn is through our sense experiences. And so this, John Locke, by the way, wrote the, the founding fundamentals of South Carolina. I don't know if y'all know that, but... But when the Lord Proprietors, there was eight Lord Proprietors. Y'all want to know this? I don't know why in the world, but I like this kind of stuff. There was eight Lord Proprietors that the English king gave land to that became the Carolinas, right? And John Locke himself wrote the, the establishment of the Lord Proprietors for the Carolinas. Locke argued that everything we learn comes from sense experience. And so you had this guy who says, wait a minute, that's really impossible because it can't get us everything. So, so how do you know what a right is? Y'all know we, we like our rights, an inalienable, inalienable right. How do you know what a right is? Can you smell it? Can you taste it? Can you touch it? So there's certain things we know that our senses have not taught us. And so you have guys like Hume comes along, and Hume has his, his gap, Hume's gap, because he has all of these things, but he can't get there, right? There's, uh, he gets right up to the edge, but because he doesn't believe in God or an ultimate creator or the Imago Dei within every person, he can't quite get over the edge to the other side to say, here's how we know these things. Here's how we understand these things. You have Hume's Gap, you have Kant's Wall, all of these guys who tried to philosophize, that's a legit word, their way to an understanding of how we know, where we came from, where we are going, they kept running into obstacles because they did not have the one key piece that we are made in the image of God, the creator of heaven and earth. That explains how we know what our rights are. That explains how we know. So those things come from an understanding of who God is. And so what the worldview does is it puts all of those big questions and it puts it within the Christian context. So how do we answer all those tough questions people want to ask? Well, we look to the Christian worldview. We find it in Scripture and it, it helps us. And so Christianity is the only Religion, if you will, if we'll, we'll refer to it that in this way now, it's the only one that is able to give a viable answer to all of life's big questions. All the others fail on so many of these things, but Christianity gives one. And so what Colson's arguing in his book is, if we believe that's true, then it will matter how we live. 
If we believe we have the image of God within us, created in his image, then it's going to matter how we live and what we do with that. If we believe that we're sinners and that we have turned away from God and rejected him and not followed after him, then it's going to matter how we live in light of that. If we believe in redemption, that in spite of our sin, God came and rescued us by his own grace and mercy through the sending of his son and the shedding of Christ's own blood and his resurrection even from death so as to conquer the very things that our sin have brought upon us in judgment, Christ has come to do this for us, then it's going to matter in how we live our life if that's true, right? And if it's true that he's returning for us, if it's true that he's gone to prepare a place and so the end isn't the end, we don't just end in some sort of annihilation of all things. We have an eternal home waiting for us that God has prepared. And he could come back. And not only could he come back, get this, he could come back at any moment. Then it matters how we live right now, right? And so what Colson is saying is that if you apply the Christian worldview, then you must apply also the Christian lifestyle. Those two things have to go together. If you're going to argue this, these are the answers, we even, whether it's sufficient or some enough, we have an answer to the problem of evil in the world. We have those answers to those questions. And if we're going to have those answers and have those from a Christian worldview, then by all means we must live a Christian lifestyle in light of it. How now shall you live in light of what we believe is true? So, ultimately, when we come to the book of Leviticus, that is what's happening. And I've said this many times, uh, and, and I just reiterate it again because I think it's the most important point of it, is that God has saved his people, he's redeemed them, and now he wants to what? Be with them. And, and if, I can, if, if I can get you to understand how important this is, so you have the Exodus, right? So if you, if you think about the Exodus, you have the Israelites um, going into Egypt in slavery and bondage and captivity. God raises up a leader named Moses, right, who was amongst his people. He was one of them, but even rejected by them. Remember, Moses had to leave and go to Midian because Moses had rose up there. So he was there. God raises him up and, and calls Moses to be the deliverer of his people. So Moses goes in and he redeems and, and uh, through Moses, God redeems his people by that leader who steps in and challenges the gods of Egypt. And then the plagues come. And, and what happened? And Moses leads the people out. As we know, the Lord leads the people out with the cloud. And, and Moses comes through this. And they're, now they're headed through the wilderness to get to the promised land. And this was going to be a journey, but it wasn't supposed to be 40 years. We'll get to that in Numbers. So they're headed through the promised land. God's going to stop here as Moses leads them to Sinai, which, by the way, was the place that God told Abraham he will bring his people back and reveal himself to him in this, on this very mountain. And so now they're back 
God reveals himself to his people. He gives them the government by which they are to live, the law, all of these things, so that they can go to the promised land. And in the promised land, God even tells them, here's what you're going to do. You're going to build me a tabernacle. You're going to build a building. You're going to make the footstool there. The Ark of the Covenant will be the footstool. My throne will be in heaven. Here's where I'm going to dwell with you, right? So God has saved them to take them to the promised land so he can be with them, dwell in their midst, be in their presence. That's the whole point. So if God's people have been called out of redemption and God's doing this and God's going to dwell with them, now he's saying, here's how you have to live in light of my presence. Here's what's expected of you because I'm here. Now, just to fast forward, I hope y'all can see, this is why Moses says, there is one coming who is greater than me, right? Mo, this picture of what happens with Israel in these chapters is going to point to exactly what will happen with God's people through his greater deliverer, his son, Jesus Christ. His greater sacrifice, his son, Jesus Christ. The greater blood that is shed for them, his son, Jesus Christ, right? So all of this is point. And then what happens? Jesus saves them. He's going to save us. He's going to take us to the promised land. And we are headed there now. That's ultimately so. Ultimately, all of this is giving us a glimpse or a picture of the very redemption that God is going to provide through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we can learn lessons from Leviticus. That's why this is not distant scripture from us. This is not something that's far. All of scripture is God-breathed, but all of scripture is pointing us to the very redemption that God is going to give us. So we're learning now even about what Christ is going to do. This is why the author of Hebrews puts it all together for us. The blood of bulls and goats, which we've been walking through with Leviticus, and we see how much blood has to be shed for the people to have their sins forgiven. The blood of bulls and goats, you know what the author of Hebrews says? Could never forgive sins. Couldn't do it. It was just a placeholder and a picture until the ultimate sacrifice came. So all of that, the scapegoat in Leviticus 16, the, the propitiate, propitiation, whatever, uh, propitiation goat there in Leviticus 16 that, that is killed, both of those become glimpses and pictures of who Christ is and what he's done. And so all of this is teaching us about the very salvation that we have, how God has saved us and redeemed us from slavery and bondage of sin, greater than the slavery and bondage in Egypt, how he's redeemed us from death, what was really weighing over us, greater than the Passover as the 10th plague. He's redeemed us from all of this, so how now shall we live? It gives us a picture of that. So... Just a couple things here in, in Leviticus 24. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be real short tonight. I've already shook a little bit. So what we've seen in the last couple chapters is we've seen what it looks like now for the people to live as a holy people, right? We, we go back to that passage. Go back to chapter 20, verse 26. You shall be holy to me for I, the Lord, and holy have separated you out. He speaks about the holiness of the priests in 21 and 22 and then he gives us these offerings 
And so what he's going to do here is he's going to lay out, or what he's doing is laying out the basically the rituals or the daily routines of the people. So daily you will bring offering and sacrifice unto the temple, right? For you remember those sacrifices in the first six chapters. Daily you'll bring those. Every week you're going to you're going to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. You know what I'm saying? So you have your daily routines, you have your weekly routines, and then and then they'll start recognizing these other these other feasts. So you go through and you have we looked at some of these, the feasts of the Lord. The, you have the Sabbath, that's that's weekly. You have the Passover, that's once a year. You have the Feast of First Fruits. You have the Feast of Weeks. You have the Feast of Trumpets. You have the Day of Atonement. You have the Feast of Booze. You have all of these things become the rhythms of Israel as a holy people. All of those things are reminders. They are setting up to remind you that keeping the Sabbath day doesn't save you. But resting in the Lord does, right? And so they are to remind you of your dependence upon God. They're to remind you of how good he has been. So you have the Passover because you're reminded that God delivered us from the death angel. You have the Feast of, of uh, Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booze, because you're reminded that God dropped manna from the sky and it was new and fresh every single morning while we were in the tents walking through the wilderness and didn't have anything to eat. You have these feasts that are reminding you of the goodness and graciousness and the kindness of God. They have to be a part of your regular routine. And I would say to you the very same thing as a Christian believer. You must have things in your life reminding you daily, weekly, yearly of the goodness and graciousness of God. Now, for us, it could be all kind of things, a couple potlucks, and we're happy. You know what I'm saying? But what I mean here is this. We daily seek manna from the Lord. Daily. And when we wake up, it is new and fresh every morning. But you know where it comes from for us? It comes from right here. We don't, we don't have to find the little pieces of bread on the ground. The Lord's provided for us way better than that. But we do find manna. Y'all know some of y'all still love it. Some of y'all wait on your daily breads. And some of y'all, y'all know I'm talking about the daily breads. Y'all know I'm talking about, right? A little magazine, a little daily bread. And some of y'all had to graduate to the large print daily bread. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Had the little booklets, and then you have to get the bigger ones because you can't read it. But there's a sense in which it's good. All of that's exactly right. Every morning, like Israel in the wilderness, we wake up with new and fresh manna on the ground. God's word speaks to us. Now, before you tell me, and here's, here's, here's again, before you say to me, I just need a word from the Lord. My answer to that every single time is going to be what? You already got one. God has provided for us every single thing we need for life and salvation right here. Right here. He's provided it for us. And it's amazing how we wake up in the morning if we put the routine, just like Israel, to gather together their daily bread so they can eat for the rest of the day. 
that's exactly what God wants us to do. That is a part of our routine. It's not just something we check off for the box. It is our sustenance even for the day. But we also have routines for the week. I don't have to tell you all this. this you're in your routine for the week. We gather together on Wednesday nights to, to look to God's word and to fellowship and to find encouragement and to tell everybody what's going on in our life and, and to find out how everybody's doing. And, and all of those things is a part of our daily routine that I think, as I'm looking around, we would miss this if we didn't have it, right? This sustains us even for the rest of the week. We look forward to this. I do. And we have our Sunday morning worship. The Lord's Day gathering where we come together and we're reminded again that Jesus Christ is alive. No matter how horrible of a week we had, everything's working together for our good. Because Jesus is still on the throne, right? That's exactly what he's doing here in Leviticus. It's, it's not so distant from us. I know it seems weird. They're doing the feast. They're doing this. But it's the same type thing for us. We have our daily we have our weekly, we have our yearly routines. As we gather together on Easter and Good Friday and we remember that kindness of the Lord in his ultimate provision for us on the cross. And surely we talk about that all throughout the year, but those days we gather, or even gather together at Christmas, we do it. I know it seems so commercialized, and doesn't seem, but we still gather together to be reminded that the Lord came for us. These are things that are good for us and a part of our routines. So the Lord is telling Israel, having been in Egypt, he's pulling them out and saying, here's how you're going to order your life so that you won't forget God's graciousness and kindness. And what I would encourage you, no matter how that looks for you, I'm real hesitant. Here's what I say. We have the graces that God has given us. And we talk about these. We have prayer. We have scripture and we have, we have worship, gathering together for worship, right? We have these three things that God has given us. And there's others that can encourage us, other things that are there. But we have these three things. I'm telling you, those three things have to be a part of your weekly, daily rhythms. If you want to truly follow up, how now shall we live? We live in light of, Lord, I want to be reminded. I want to be shown. I want to, I want to know you. And so those things have to be a part of those rhythms of our life. And so the Lord's telling Israel as he's teaching them, because they're a lot like we are, they're just a young child at this point. They've been in bondage for 400 years. He's pulling them out, and now he's having to teach them how to live in light of his presence. So he's telling them, like he tells us, you've got to order your life with that understanding. If God is... Uh, present in your life, then you order your life around him. You know why Jesus says, you know, you can't serve both God and money? You know why he brings money up, right? Because we don't shape money. Money shapes us. Does that make sense? Money starts running our lives. And so money is a, a wicked God to us. Because one, it's never enough. One, it's not, it, it, it doesn't do what it, it doesn't deliver on what you think it's going to deliver. It can't satisfy the way you think it's going to satisfy, yet you will structure your whole life around it. And so Jesus says you can't do that. We don't shape God. 
We don't shape money. If we love money more than God, money's going to shape us. And it's going to be the story of our life. If we love the Lord, he will shape us into, his, into who he would have us to be. That's what Jesus is saying. And ultimately, that's what he's teaching even here in Leviticus. You're going to have to shape your life in light of the fact that I'm with you. It's a new day. I'm here. And so now you live your life according to that. And then he gets into chapter 24, and he shifts back to this idea of the temple, the tabernacle. And I have just a couple things here. How do we live in light of God's presence? How now shall we live in light of God's presence in our lives? Verse 24, 1 through 4, we serve him. We serve him. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp that a light may be kept burning regularly outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting. Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. We serve him. In other words, the tabernacle, remember, the tabernacle is seen as God's dwelling place, right? Everybody, everybody else has a tent, the Lord has one. And so you have the sections of the tabernacle. We'll really get into this in Numbers. But here, and, and you can remember they did this in Exodus. This is straight back from Exodus 25. And so the, the, the tabernacle is God's tent, his tabernacle, his dwelling place. And so what's going to happen inside a tabernacle is it's going to be like a home. You're going to have a lamp that you keep burning constantly. You keep oil in it, pure oil, because pure oil speaks to a pure heart and a pure life. And so you keep pure oil in that, and you keep that burning all the time. You serve the Lord by keeping the light burning. And in the same way, then, if we just apply this, and we'll do it, I'll run through these. It won't take too long. But if, if you do this, the tabernacle, it, it can't function without the daily service of the people of God. So God gave them something to do. He gave them something to do. He told them, bring the oil. And it was the responsibility of all of Israel to continually bring oil in to keep the light burning. They had a service to do there for the Lord. As believers, God has given us something to do. Idle hands as what? Devil's playground. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Y'all had a grandma. And so you always, y'all got nothing to do? I'll give you something to do. You know, I know what that meant. That included a shovel and some piece of work. And I'll be like, nah, I'll find something to do. I'm good. I'll go play. You know what I'm saying? Like, you don't come in and sit around back, in, back with, with, with Granddaddy Bill. So, same thing. The Lord's saying, you have service. There is not one believer that does not have something to offer for the work and glory of God. Not one. Don't tell me you don't have something to offer. I love, I was talking with some of our, our people at uh, South Carolina, the homes for the aging, you know, so it's nursing homes that South Carolina Baptists have. And some of them still have, you know, they, they, their body's given out, their mind's good. You know what they do? They answer the Billy Graham hotline. Y'all know that? They sit in the nursing home and they... Answer the, so the Billy Graham hotline still goes to the Billy Graham Evangelist Association. They show Billy Graham sermons on TV on some channel somewhere out there, you know. Uh, and so they have that, and people will still call into that number asking for prayer. That's what they do. They answer the phones and they pray. 
we all have something to offer in service unto God to keep the lights burning, to keep the fire going. And we bring the pure oil in to keep that thing going, to keep it going. I mean, this is simply the case here. It should not be the case. Sometimes it is. I understand. It should not be the case, though, that we have to search within a church our size, search for people to help and work and serve in places like children's ministry or preschool or other. These things are not something we should have to search after. We have enough people who have the ability and hopefully the desire to serve the Lord maybe in this way, as well as so many others. And we do. We see so many around our church serving. There's so many things to do, but the Lord's given us enough. And so we serve. We keep the light, the lamp burning. We serve him. If we're going to live in his presence, we're going to be servants. And, and before we fuss about that, Jesus was a servant. I mean, I think Mark 10, 45 is one of the most profound verses in all of Scripture. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Now, let's put that in perspective. Jesus uses his favorite, favorite moniker for himself, the Son of Man. That's a direct reference back to Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, most people believe, I do as well, that it's a prophecy for Daniel looking to the day that Jesus, having accomplished his death, burial, and resurrection on the earth, right, then ascends into heaven. That Daniel chapter 7 is a prophecy looking to the day that Jesus ascends into heaven and he's welcomed there. And it says the Ancient of Days takes the crown puts it on his head and says, yours is a kingdom forever and ever and ever and ever. And all things everywhere will bow to you. So get what Jesus is saying in Mark 10. Then. The son of man who will receive the crown of all creation, everything will bow to him forever and ever and ever. He's king of kings. He's lord of lords. He is above all, right? He didn't come to be served. Isn't that what a king gets? Servants. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve. And you are never, hear me? I've said this before. I won't, there's a couple things I say all the time that I don't want you to ever remember probably. This one I do. You are never more like Jesus than when you serve. And here the Lord says, if you're going to be living in my presence, then we must serve him regularly, bringing the pure oil, our gift, holiness, serving him. Not only we serve him, we also fellowship with him. Look, verse 5, you get in the picture of this house. He says, you shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it, two tenths of an epoch. Y'all write this down. Y'all might want to do this. Shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile on the table of pure gold before the Lord. You shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. 
Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons. They shall eat in a holy place since it is for him a most holy portion of the Lord's food offerings of perpetual due. Does God need bread? Okay, we got that settled, right? That's enough. So why does God do this? He says, every week you prepare bread and you keep it in my tabernacle. Remember, it's a house. This is where he dwells. It functions like a house. What do you do in a house? You eat. And on that Sabbath, then the priests are to eat of that bread as if they are gathered around the table with the Lord in fellowship. It's a call to fellowship. It's a picture of fellowship. The Lord is not separating himself out as some distant one from his people. He's dwelling with them and he wants to eat with them. Now, man, as a good, you know, Jesus preacher, how good is that, right? When Jesus is with his disciples around the table and he's there and he breaks the bread with them and they eat. So the Lord is saying, he's fulfilling that very calling to say, the Lord is not distant. He wants fellowship with you. The Lord is not far from you. He's not a God who is, who is separate. He's dwelling in your neighborhood. He's living in this presence. He's here. And so he wants to fellowship with you. God wants to dwell with us because he wants to be with us. It's really a radical, unbelievable, glorious thing that the Lord of the universe wants to be with us. And so he's done everything necessary to make this happen. We are invited into his table having brought nothing with us. The only thing, the only thing that welcomes us in is the redemption and forgiveness of our sins that he has provided for. It's the only thing. Y'all remember those parables Jesus tells, right, of the wedding feast? And he's got some garments. I didn't know what that meant. You know, it got garments. What does that mean? So until I went and, and I served some time in South Asia and in India, and one of my friends, a Christian, was getting married, and I didn't, I, like, we had to keep, I was with them, and we kept going shopping for clothes. They had to buy every woman that they invited to the ceremony a traditional Indian dress, a sari. It was part of their ritual. This is what they do. They bought them because if they're going to invite them, they're going to provide for them the clothes to wear when they come. Y'all are thinking, God, that's a lot of money. <laughs> their money's like Monopoly money, so it doesn't big deal. <laughs> so you, you provide. It's the same way the Lord says. It's the same way he says, I've got the garments, the table set, welcome them in. Right? And so remember, the two people jump in over the fence here. They do a little wedding crashing. And when they look, what does the, owner, what does the master say? Where's your clothes? You know, where's your garments? And remember what they said in response? That's right, nothing. Because they were caught red-handed. When the master sees them, they've got no response. Where are your garments? They had nothing to say. The Lord says, so it will be on the final day. No one is getting in without their garments. No one's getting in. 
And then he looks and he says to his servants, he says, now go and call others. And they said, well, we've called everybody. And he said, still there is room. Go to the hedges. Go to the fence rows. Go anywhere and call others to come. Still we have room. You can't get in without the garments, but the garments are freely provided to anyone who will come, right? And so what the Lord is saying, even in this picture here, is I've come so that I can be with my people, and I've provided everything. All you've got to do is sit at the table and eat. And so the psalmist uses language about food all the time. Taste and see that the Lord is good. But God's not calling us to nibble at his table. He's calling us to feast upon his grace and mercy. And he's reminding the people, fellowship is what I want. I want to be with you. We don't need any more reminder for us as believers. Christ Jesus came for us. He's provided a table that he has made even in the midst of our enemies. And his table is one that sustains us because it's not just regular old nasty bread, whether it's gluten-free or not. His table is his own body and his own blood that has been shed for us. And he says, come and eat. Fellowship. If we're going to live in God's presence, then he wants fellowship with us. We can't live like he's not there. He's there. So we order our lives according to him. We live according to him. But not only that, we got two more things. We fellowship with him. We come reverently. Look at verses 10 through 16 going to talk about punishment for blasphemy. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel and the Israelite woman's son. And a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israel, Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name, that's the name of the Lord, and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shilomoth, right? The daughter of Debri of the tribe of Dan and they put him in custody till the will of the Lord shall be clear to them then the Lord spoke to Moses saying bring out of the camp the one who cursed and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him and speak to the people of Israel saying whoever curses his God shall bear his sin whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death and all the congregation shall stone him the sojourner as well as the native when he blasphemes the name shall be put to death shall be put to death I saw a t-shirt you know I, there's a joke that goes around when, when I was growing up in the 90s you know, the 90s, literally, the only thing better than the 90s were the 80s. And so Christian T-shirts were there all the time, right? And, and, and so you had these Christian T-shirts. Remember the Caruso company? They had the Christian T-shirts all the time. Whatever, y'all don't remember. So it was a thing. Well, this past week, I saw a Christian T-shirt. I saw a lady and real big on her shirt, I heart Jesus. I said, that's good, that's simple. I can dig that. You know, they'll know us by the T-shirts that we wear. If we wear the right T-shirts, then we don't even have to tell them about Jesus. We just got a good T-shirt on. It's a joke. So she had I heart Jesus. But then as I got closer, really small underneath it, but I cuss a little. Some of y'all are like, I want that T-shirt. I heart Jesus, but I cuss a little. 
I kid you not, I was thinking about this verse. How good would it have been if I just walked up to this strange woman with an I heart Jesus, but I cussed a little, and said, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, bring out of the camp the one who cursed and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let the congregation stone her. That would have been a good verse to quote. What the Lord is saying in this passage, even in the harsh treatment that we see or we think is there, the Lord is saying if we're going to live in his presence, we cannot, not just not take him for granted, we cannot blaspheme him. We cannot curse him. And, and, and here's what I want you all to understand. That's the top, right? That's the, the pinnacle. And so if you think of it in the top of the pinnacle, that means if you are committed not to curse or blaspheme the Lord, then you'll be committed to do all the other things that are required. It's the ultimate, really, really. Because cursing and blaspheming wouldn't just be with your mouth. It could also be with your lifestyle and how you live. And so ultimately he's saying, if you curse or blaspheme me, then you've committed the unpardonable sin in the camp because no one is going to live in my presence and be free to do that. We got a question that we have to ask. So if we believe that every breath, every heartbeat that we have is a gift from God. Do y'all believe that? I believe that. I don't, I, I'm immortal until the Lord calls me home, right? Y'all have heard that before. Um, you can't kill me until the Lord's ready for that to happen. And so he's the one who causes my heart to beat. So every heartbeat's a gift from God. Every breath is a gift from God. So if he's going to gift you that breath, why would we dare use it to curse his name? Right? If he's going to gift you that heartbeat, why would you dare use the life that it pumps through your soul to curse him? Isn't that the height of ungraciousness? Isn't that the height of arrogance? We would never do that in our life. You know, if somebody gifted us something, we're going to have some sort of reverence to them. We're going to have some sort of deference to them, even if we don't like it. I mean, I've gotten a lot of stuff that I don't like. And I simply say, oh, this is nice. I'm not going to say this is stupid. I hate this. Nobody does that. But whenever we take the gift that God gives us in our heartbeat and our breath and we curse him or use it to glorify ourselves, to honor us rather than him, then we're simply saying, thank you, but I'm going to take this for myself. That's what the Lord is saying here. We're going to live in light of the fact that God is present. We're not going to curse him. We're not going to mock him. We're going to live for him. We're going to live for him. So the Lord says, this is what happens to those who curse or blaspheme. We live graciously as well. Verse 17 and I want you to read this as living graciously. Whoever takes a human life, this may be the most famous or well-known verses in Le Leviticus maybe. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall, be, shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given, a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. 
you shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded. This is the lex talionis, right? The law of retaliation. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And when we read this, we read it about judgment, don't we? We read it of how we're going to judge. You know, the punishment should fit the crime. Surely that's true. And so you take a human life, he's saying, then your, your life will be taken from you. But an animal, you just got to make that right. You got to give them another animal. We're not going to take a human life or take an animal. Fracture, fracture. He's just simply saying the punishment fits the crime. Whatever you do shall be done back. Now, when you see that, our thought is that that's about judgment. I want you to flip that for a second. I think the Israelites read this about God's grace, not about judgment. Because that's not how it was working in Egypt. In fact, most of the ancient Near Eastern cultures that we research and study were much more revenge cultures, right? You come after me, then my tribe's going to come after you. And then if I, you do this for me, then I'm going to retaliate. And when I retaliate, I'm going to retaliate even more unto you to, to get you back for what I'm doing. So there was no real culture of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It was a revenge culture and a revenge lifestyle. But here the Lord is putting it different. He's given this authority. And notice who he gives the authority to. Do y'all see what Moses does in verse 23? So Moses spoke to who? The people of Israel. And they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did here. The authority to handle these things were not given to one person. It was given to the nation itself. Like Romans 13 when the Lord when Paul writes to the Romans to say it's the government's responsibility to care for the justice of the people. It was given to the people to handle and carry out a justice, but not just any justice, a gracious and right justice. So if we're going to live in light of this, then we live graciously. We don't take more than is required. We don't do things differently than what is right. We give grace in these situations. So if you steal my pig, it doesn't mean I'm going to kill your kid, right? We handle it in a right way. In cultures around Israel, there was vicious revenge going on even at the time. That was the rule of the day. But the right, the right of retaliation doesn't belong. And hear me when I say this. The right, and we know this to be true, right? The right of retaliation doesn't belong to the individual. The right of judgment doesn't belong to the individual. It belongs to the government, to the people. And here the Lord is setting that straight because the people in that way make the right judgments. The individual's hurt, no revenge. By the way, this continues in the New Testament, doesn't he? When he tells us, do not seek revenge, do not be vengeful. So ultimately, if you're going to live in light of this, you are going to, in light of God's presence, you're going to live serving him, you're going to live fellowshipping with him, you're going to come reverently to him and you're going to live graciously before him. That's the point of chapter 24. Now, I do want to point out a couple things. One, uh, look with me to Matthew 12. And I'll close it here. We won't take long. 
I could turn to three different places in the Gospels. Y'all know how the Gospels work, right? You have what's called the synoptic Gospels. Everybody know that? One view gospel, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's why they oftentimes share the same stories. They, they have the same, and, and, and this one's the case. They, they work. They have one view, synoptic. They, they have this. Now, they have their way of putting them together. They have other stories they add in, but they share many of the same stories. Now, John is completely different. If you read John, he doesn't share any of the same stories really with the other ones. But John, uh, and he doesn't, if he does share the story, like the feeding of the 5,000, he doesn't share it in the same way. John's different, but these three are the same. So if you could turn, you could ultimately, y'all, y'all turn to Matthew 12, didn't you? You could turn to Matthew 12, you could turn to Mark 2, you could turn to Luke 6. All of them dealing with the same thing, the Lord of the Sabbath. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is referring to a passage in Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel, where David is running from Saul. He's running from Saul. He's all by himself. It's one of my favorite passages because it leads directly into Psalm 34. It's the passage where he ends up in a cave hiding from Saul. And before he knows, he's got 400 men there going, hey, what are we going to do? And it was all men. They were all, it said that they were all mad and they were all in debt and they were all like, we're here. And so David had these men. Well, on this run from Saul, as Saul's trying to kill him, David stops and he goes to the priest, and the priest, David hasn't eaten anything, and the priest has the bread that we just read about in Leviticus chapter 24, the bread that is prepared every week, and on the Sabbath day, the priests are to eat it, but only the priest can eat it, right? That's the only way. So somebody's not a priest is not supposed to eat the bread. If they do that, they've, they've desecrated the temple and the word. But when David gets there, what happens? The priest gives him the bread. And he eats, and he's fine, and everything's okay. And so what Jesus is saying is, you've got your laws and your statutes that you find here in Leviticus, but what I'm telling you is that something greater than all of that is here. Because the priest is the one who gets to determine what's holy or unclean or uh, clean or unclean, holy or unholy. And there that priest made the determination that David was okay to eat the bread. And he did. It's the priest that does it. And so here he's arguing from the, the lesser to the greater. If the priest can give bread to David, he's okay. How much more so can I take the grain in the field and us eat? Because I, I'm the one greater, Jesus is saying. Or, or he even goes on to say, 
to say the same thing. He's doing the same argument again when he does that. Have you not heard in the law how the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is saying all of this in Leviticus is pointing even to me. <coughs> Excuse me. All of these requirements are pointing to me. The priest gave the bread to David and it legitimizes David as the king oversaw, how much greater am I coming as the true high priest that gives the bread to my people and they eat? Welcomed in. Then Jesus, as the priest authorizes uh, there, the teacher of the law, the priest judges between which is clean and unclean. How much more clean is this because Christ has made it clean? Jesus is king. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the greater temple. Where we meet God, where his presence is now, is not in any building anywhere. It's not in any tent marching around through any desert. Jesus says, as John 1, 14, he's the tabernacle that has come and dwelled with us. And so all of this in Leviticus is pointing us to the fact that we don't even, it's not just that God's with us. It's not just that we don't have a tent anymore. We've got the greater tabernacle. Christ Jesus is here. The presence of God is here. And so now how shall we then live? If the one greater is here, who makes all things clean for us to eat and feast on and provides it for his people, who calls himself calls us out of the wilderness and not only saves us, but makes us, helps us, leads us to reign with him, as Paul says. How much more should we understand our life to be precious to him and let him now direct us, let him shape us? How now shall we live in light of that? Ultimately, that's the whole point we're getting to. If the Lord is present and Christ Jesus is here, then it should change the way we live. We should serve him. We should honor him. We should fellowship with him. We should worship him. And we should live graciously before him and all people. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. It is good. And we ask tonight that you would use it to grow us mold us and shape us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.